Hello everyone, my name is Christian. Welcome back to TechPoint today. Our guest is Lloyd, the co-founder at Boast. Hello. Hey, how you doing, Christian? Excited Fantastic. to be here. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining. At first, please tell us what your company does. Definitely. So my company, Boast, we automate government funding for businesses that are developing new products or improve improving existing products. Globally, hundreds of billions of dollars are given by governments to support innovative businesses. But the application process is broken and cumbersome and painful, and it takes a long time to get the money. And so we set out to streamline that. Coincidentally, my co-founder, Alex Popa, is also from Romania. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing. How did you come up with this idea? Definitely. So Alex and I were best friends since university. We partners in every project and work together. And then after university, I moved to the States, started working in startups. Alex did a startup, worked at a big tech company, Johnson & Johnson, and uh, did engineering there. Then he went and studied accounting and finance, and that unique combination of engineering and accounting took him to the world of R&D funding, right? Because when you apply for these R&D funding programs, you need to understand the technical side and the financial side. And so one day he called me and said, hey man, this whole process is broken. It's so manual, it's so cumbersome. Let's do something in it together. And because we're such good friends, I said, okay, I, I will drop everything to work with you. And actually I was in San Francisco at the time and he was in Calgary, Canada. And so I moved into his apartment and he had one extra room. So <laughs> that was the office and that was uh, the place where we started. Wow, amazing story and amazing friendship. When did you exactly start? What year? We started in 2012. Oh, wow. Okay, so it's been some, some time. How, how big is the team now? Now the company is over 100 people, maybe 120. So when we started, actually, Christian, we worked on a few projects together. So we started by offering a manual service first, just doing it better than others. And then we okay. did a tech product in parallel called Automatically, which was a chatbot built on top of Zendesk. And that project failed. And uh, we also did an events uh, company where we had a co-founder who ran away with all the money from the first conference. So we had multiple things going on. And then when we realized, you know, Boast has a lot of paying customers, why not we just convert it into a software company? And in 2017, actually, we re reincorporated the company as Boast AI, and we started moving the customers to software. Now, you know, what is the big benefit of doing that is a lot of Founders say, oh, you know, I can't raise money. I need capital. I think the best way to bootstrap a company without investors, outside funding, to $1 million in ARR, and, you know, this is how we actually bootstrap Boast to $10 million in ARR with no investor money. This is how another great Romanian company, UiPath, right? They bootstrapped the company in the early days for maybe several, several, several years, and last couple of years, they had the biggest IPO of all time. It was all started yes. by selling a service. Yes. And you know, in the VC world, the selling a service is a bad word, right? Because they say, oh, gross margin is low, it's labor intensive, it's unscalable. But the truth is when you're starting out and you have an idea, you should do things that don't scale. If you try to scale in the beginning, then you will likely fail or waste a lot of money. So we started by selling a service. 
because customers don't want software. And you know this, Christian, right? Customers actually want outcomes. They don't want to buy the next exactly. software and the next software. Customers want outcomes. They don't want software. There's this great graphic, actually, of Mario eating a mushroom and becoming Super Mario. And they say <laughs> the mushroom is not your product. Your product is Super Mario. So customers want outcomes. And what happens also when you sell a service, you actually get really good at selling, meaning not the scammy, spammy way, but you actually actively listening to customers, asking targeted questions, gathering valuable insights so you can tailor solutions specifically to them. And in the process, you develop long-standing, strong relationships with them and you become seen as a trusted advisor because you're not just pushing a product on them. Other thing also what happens is you get very good at customer success, right? Because there is no buttons or widgets or installation or any of that onboarding to hide. Customers want an outcome. They're paying you for the outcome. If there is no outcome, there is no customer. And the benefit of all of that, Christian, is you know exactly what to build because you've done the work manually. So step by step, you know what process to deliver customer outcomes. Then you know exactly what to automate, what to eliminate. So for example, if you're collecting data manually, then you build integrations. Then you make, you write code to make sense of that data And then you'll build some workflows to digitize the necessary tasks. And as you actually build more software, you'll see your gross margins going up and you'll keep more control of your company without diluting, right? What a lot of us do is before we even start working on an idea, we start going after investors. But I think like one of a great way to build a business is actually talk to customers, get them to pay you, and then offer that service manually and write down all the steps you took to deliver them the outcome and make them happy, especially in B2B SaaS, and then start automating it. And that's actually how we got to 1 million in ARR, and that's how we actually got to 10 million. Our first version of the product was not even a full-blown software. We first did it manually, then we had like templates and and, uh, documentation. Then what we did was we leveraged Zoho, you know, Zoho Creator and Zapier, to create some integrations and workflow, then we went into full-blown software. And actually, uh, Christian, when we got to 10 million in revenue, we had only like 30, 35 people, eh? Well, amazing formula. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, And after that, you decided to raise funding. Am I correct? Yeah, after that, what happened was during the pandemic, investors uh, started coming in and we started exploring. Do we raise VC money? Do we go the private equity route? And fortunately, we have this big community that we had been building called Traction, and we got about 120,000 subscribers. We do host a lot of events. And um, through those events, we met this growth equity firm, Radiant Capital out of New York, and they, you know, they said, hey, who runs this event? We want to talk to you. And when I talked to them, they said, can you become a venture partner or sorry, can you join our venture partner network? And we'll give you carry on all the deals you pass us. And I said, hey, I have a business to run. This community thing we're just doing you know, on the side. So I don't have the time. And they said, what is your business? And when I explained the business, they said, wow, you're selling $100 bills for $20. Can we invest? And we said, we're not interested in investments because we had seen a lot of our friends. And me particularly, I had only worked for venture-backed startups. And so they all failed, right? So that just tells you nine out of 10 venture-backed companies actually fail. From the time I graduated university, I have only worked for venture-backed startups. And Alex was like always against raising money because when you raise venture capital, you bring a new partner to the table and then 
every business relationship is a is a marriage, right? So he's like, why do you want to add a third person to your marriage? And so he was very adamant about maintaining that control, which works out. A lot of us, what we do is we give up so much control in our business that we don't have any say anymore by the time it gets to the second, third round of funding. Yeah. So Radiant Capital ended up being a growth equity firm and say, hey, no, we're not traditional VCs. What they said was, we invest in founders who are bootstrapped, who have a clean cap table, and who are growing capital efficiently. And when they understood that you know, we had no marketing team and we were operating with 30, 35 people, it was very attractive. And so they said, we'll invest. And our model is the founders can liquidate or cash out from the investment while okay. still having stake in the company for the long term. So basically, they help the founders. Growth equity is a class of investment where the founders can liquidate and cash out in the short term. So they de-risk themselves because you've been running as a bootstrap founder for long. And then you have enough equity in the company for the long term. So we sold about 52% or so of the company and uh, you know, came into you know, financial freedom in many ways. And then we still, me and Alex still own about 38, 40% of the company. So that route I wanted to share because a lot of founders don't think about it. And I tell them, hey, if you only bootstrap for a little longer and you have good net revenue re retention, 100% plus, and you have good gross margin and your growth rate is decent, you can bootstrap and become wealthy, you don't have to do the VC route only. There's more options, basically. I think as a founder, it's very important for you to understand all the options available to you. And what happens in the, in the, in the startup world is we just gravitate towards what the media is saying, what TechCrunch is saying, and so on, right? Covering the funding announcement. I think it's very important for every founder to ask themselves these questions. What is my personal definition of success? Not money. Yes. But when you get the money, what will you do? What is the lifestyle you will live? What is my personal definition of success? How much money do I need in my bank account to live that personal def definition of success forever? Is there a version of the company I do not want to work for? How long do I want to run the company for? And based on that, then you decide, okay, which route of funding? Do I bootstrap longer? Do I sell to a strategic? Do I take venture financing? Do I go private equity? I think those are really important. Great companies are built on great alignment. I really like your thinking. Well, you shared the immense value. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, I wanted to ask you, how did you build the community? When did you start? Definitely. So this is, this is a very interesting story. So when we started the company, <laughs> right? Imagine I'm in Calgary now in Alex's apartment, not in San Francisco, a home base. And what do you do? when you want to start a company, you can either build or you can choose to call customers and sell first. We're of the philosophy that you must build, for, you must sell first and then build it. Especially when you're a bootstrap founder, if you spend all this time building it and nobody wants it, you're doomed. So we said, okay, let's get some customers and then we'll deliver, right, the outcome. And so the first step was calling people and talking to them, right? So I'll, I'll dive into some frameworks actually, because when we were doing the work, Christian, it felt like we're throwing spaghetti on the wall and seeing what's <laughs> going to stick, right? It always yes. does. Now, when yes. you look back, you think, oh, this was a framework. The other thing was a framework. They're all frameworks. But when you're actually doing the work, Christian, it really feels like, oh God, I hope something works. And you're just throwing it and throwing it and throwing it and hope something sticks. 
So when I look back, right, I'll, I'll talk through the process we used to get the first customers, and then I'll dive into the framework. So what we did first was we started cold calling, okay? And we cold called and cold emailed manufacturing and agriculture and construction companies and oil and gas companies. Oil and gas was very big at the time. And these are all sizable companies and nobody would talk to us. It sounds a bit scammy, right? Two guys saying, hey, give us your product development and R&D data and we'll get you some money. And even if it's not scammy, even if they heard about it, then they're like, oh, why don't I work with a big company like my big four accounting firm? So they wouldn't talk to us. So the next step, what we started to do is we started to go to events, oil and gas events, manufacturing events, construction events. And it was very hard to resonate with them, right? We didn't feel like it's yes. our tribe. And, you know, we look like some guys, some young guys who just put on a suit on top of our hoodie and went there. <laughs> and they're like more serious people. Yes. So we got, we got dejected and we started going to all the tech startup events. And we found like, oh my God, this is our tribe. We can have conversations. We built friendships there. We participated in hackathons. And we started then hanging out with those people. It genuinely became our tribe. And, and, and the vibe was very good. The camaraderie was good. And so now looking back, framework one, you don't have an ideal customer. You want to figure out which ideal customer you want to target. Step one, find a target market that you love or you are passionate about or that you can resonate with, that you can vibe with. That is important because building a company is a long haul. If you hate your customers, you'll not survive, right? If you're like, oh man, I just don't want to hang out with them. A lot of the founder's job is spent talking to customers and spending time with them. So if you hate your customers, you got to rethink your market or find a, a co-founder who loves that market. But nonetheless, one is, do you have a passion and love for that market or do you get along with that market? You can vibe with them because it's a long haul. Number two is, is it a small niche, but it's growing, right? The niche is important. It's very difficult, especially as a bootstrap founder to target 10 kinds of customers because if you try to please everyone, you please no one. So start with a small niche and make sure it's expanding. So at the time when we started, a lot of our competitors would make fun of us saying, oh, you're going after startups, right? This is 2012. Startups never pay the bills. So you guys are going to go bankrupt. And we had to tell them like, your you don't want to serve the startups. Your customers don't want to work with us, which is bigger companies. So we are founders ourselves. So we're going to serve our own people, right? Yes. And today, if you look at it in 2023, some you know, 10, 12 years forward, all these big accounting firms, finance firms, they're all having startup programs, right, to service them. But back then, nobody was. And, and so that small niche that is growing, the bet we made was the startup market is going to grow, and it exploded. It surpassed every other market, right? It's a very fast-growing market. Absolutely. The third one is, do they have the propensity to pay? Will they pay you? There's no point if you love the market and, uh, you know, it's a large market, but they never want to pay, right? So pay is key. And then the fourth one is ease of access. Again, you may love the market and it's a big one, but you never have access to that market. What's the use? So oil and gas or manufacturing is a big market, but it was very hard for us to break through. And if we kept banging our head there, we would definitely fail. So that was a step one. Do I have a passion for the market? Is it small but growing? Is there a propensity to pay? Is there an ease of access? So those four things formulates who you target. Now, once you figure out who you want to target, the next framework is understanding your ideal customer profile. Where do they eat, breathe, drink, sleep? 
what are their problems that they face, what is keeping them up at night, but also what are their aspirations? Because problem is a today. It will get over tomorrow. But what are their long-term aspirations and what stands in their way? So the way we understood that was spending lots and lots and lots of time with them because it was natural, right? I said, when we started going to the startup events, we started vibing, we participated in hackathons, we hosted events together. It was a lot of fun. So we could understand a lot about them. Like basically you should walk away with at least 100 plus conversations and understand what are the pains, what are the aspirations, what are the goals, what stands in their way. Basically, you should be able to walk away with like 100 burning questions that you could someday write an encyclopedia on, uh, on this ICP, right? Now, as we were trying to understand this market, we figured two things was happening in the startup market. One was a lot of the events we go to, or we went to rather, they weren't providing tactical advice to founders. Like, how do I get my first customers? How do I get my first angel investor? How do I launch my first product? How do I make it successful? All the events at the time were being organized by event organizers. They weren't founders themselves. So, so it was very high level. You know, you bring a CEO of a company that is like so big or so far from where I'm at that I cannot relate. If I decided to start a company, I don't need inspiration. I need tactics, right? And so all the, all the events well were said. about inspiration, not tactics. Yes. And so we said, hey, what if we do our own events? We come from the startup world. We know a lot of founders. We can bring founders who are maybe five, 10 million in revenue, not 50, 100 million in revenue that will relate with a founder that's at zero or one. And they can share tactical advice, like very, very tactical advice. And so that was a bet we started and we hosted our first event and now our email outreach went from buy my stuff to saying, hey, Christian, you're a founder of a company and you're trying to get it off the ground and you, know, you face obviously these challenges. We brought an influencer, Alex, who's the founder of a company that just crossed 5 million ARR and he's gonna talk about how he got his first 1 million ARR, very tactically, step by step. I have 10 spots and free pizza at our co-working space you wanna join. All 10 came, all 10 came. <laughs> well, now, well. N- now we didn't stop there. We kept doing those events. I think at one point we did like between online and offline, we did a hundred events, but we kept doing those events because what, what happens here, all success is nothing but compound interest on consistency. If you don't keep doing it and you stop, like if, I, if we stop at 10 people and said, oh, you know, 10 people, 10 people, 10 people, then it wouldn't blow up, right? So we kept doing these events, Christian. We kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And one day, 200 people showed up to our co-working space. And the co-working space guy said, hey, this is not a pizza meetup anymore, right? You're doing full-blown event. You're bringing a projector from outside. Um, This is a big thing. You hijacked all the aisles. So you can't do these events anymore. And that evolved into a conference. Now, the second thing was we noticed the media and local service providers weren't really supporting startups that much at the time. So I went to the national newspaper and said, can you give me a column for this region to cover startups? And they said, no, it's not like something, you know, we're interested in covering. This is 2012. So what I did was I went to some friends who ran blogs, right? Friends of friends. And I blogged on their local blogs and I blogged on their site and covered startups. And then I drove traffic to it because I covered two, three startups and they all shared it. And it got like hundreds of retweets. So I went back to the 
to the editor of the newspaper and I said, hey, look at this blog. It's so trafficked. You know, I'll bring the same traffic to your blog. And they were like, okay, wow, I'll give you a column, but it's only going to be an online blog. So when I got that online blog, rather than writing about, you know, startup goals and aspirations and startup advice, I said, what would give me the most social proof, the most drive? So we wrote a column called Startup of the Week. Oh, okay. And when you write Startup of the Week, it creates this thing like, it's like a award kind of thing, right? So now I had covered the first founder of the first startup and I shared it with him. And he got so excited that he shared it with all his friends, all the startup community. They started sharing it because the newspaper was never covering a column like that before. They were never covering startups. And it blew up. And it blew up that first, the first blog I wrote that the newspaper editor called me, I think, in one or two days. And he said, if you commit to writing it every week, I will put it in print. In 2012 and today, blogs are many. But when you have a print column, you become legitimate, right? And Absolutely. you see, yes. all success ultimately follows this pattern, right? Visibility, credibility, and then profitability. You're visible, you become credible, and then you make money. And the key to doing that is consistency. So I wrote that startup of the column for uh, startup of the week column for free for two and a half, three years. I never got paid for it, but it did two things. It did three things actually. One, if I wrote the blog on our website we would never get traffic of the SEO, right? Yes. How long does it take to get SEO? That was, a, that was a time, Christian, where LinkedIn wasn't popular for content distribution. Instagram wasn't popular for B2B. Podcasts weren't popular for B2B. Everyone was following blogs, different blogs, like you know, Basecamp's blog, Jason Lemkin's blog, Neil Patel's blog. So I'm like, if I write a blog, I'm just gonna be noise. I'm gonna get sunk. But blogging for the newspaper gave me... Yep. It, ga it gave me one instant credibility, number one. And especially when it went in print, it exploded the credibility. Number two, it gave me a backlink. So all SEO back then, and even now to, to a big extent, is driven by the authority of the person linking back to you, the website linking back to you. And the new local newspaper is the highest authority domain ranking site, right? So that drove us a lot of web traffic, like SEO juice. And then the third thing what that did was when somebody sees their name in a print, it becomes legitimate. So founders started waking up at 6, 7 in the morning every Monday and going and buying, going to the newspaper stand and buying those, giving it to family members, taking photographs, sharing it. And then everyone would apply to us, right? So everyone would apply, feature me, feature me, feature me. So our email list started growing. And I know today, like podcasts, YouTube, LinkedIn is all huge. They're great ways to build an audience, Christian, but you cannot own that audience, right? Do you get emails? Email? Do you build your email list off of your podcast? No. Who's, how, how can you subscribe? Spotify or Apple doesn't give you email. LinkedIn, if people are following your content, unless you scrape that manually, LinkedIn's not going to give you that. Instagram's not going to give you that. And right. if, you, if you don't have the contact information of your audience, you will never be able to own it or turn it into a community. So what happens then as soon as LinkedIn changes the algorithm or Instagram changes the algorithm, then you, your audience stops seeing the content as much and they start seeing other people's content. And this has what happened at Facebook, right? A lot of influencers, they build big communities there 
And then they realize that Facebook algorithm changes and their followers are seeing their content less and less. And this is what platforms need to do because they need to monetize. First, they show your content exclusively to your audience. Then they start showing your content to other people's audiences who would pay for it. And so the benefit of that was these platforms weren't prevalent for business. So we, we started this newspaper column, which would drive us signups. I want to be covered. I want to be covered. It drove us social proof and backlinks. And it drove us also um, instant credibility by having a print column, right? And that boomerang was, we would invite those people to these meetups, right? So it's a good flow. People would apply to the column. We'd invite them to the meetup. And, and that built our initial community. And we did a first conference. Now, what happened when we did the first conference was a third partner we had ran away with the money. And oh, so we wow. had to, and he locked us out of our email accounts and social media accounts. So we had to sue him. And then through that process, after we met a great friend of ours, Ray Walia, who's a co-founder in the traction community with us. And he was running a nonprofit and he had great credibility. So we said, let's host one small event together. And we did this small event together now in Vancouver. And I think like six, 700 people showed up. It was at the well, Vancouver Science Center. And he did well, such a fantastic job on the logistics and the experience because his family came from doing Bollywood events and he was great, greatly loved in the Vancouver community. He was one of the biggest community builders there. And over time now, Ray and I have become best friends. He still runs Launch Academy, which is a nonprofit incubator. And the events we do under traction goes to support that nonprofit. And so we decided to partner with him and we called our community Traction. So now here's a very important lesson here. Why did we call it Traction? We could have called it the Boast community. The reason why is when you're in the early days, you can build one of three kinds of communities. You can build a community of practice, which is educating your ideal customers on becoming better at a particular skill. Traction is all about becoming a better innovator, becoming a better entrepreneur. You can build a community of product, which is about learning about the product, becoming a product evangelist, like the Atlassian community, the GitLab community, everything about getting better at the product. Or you can build a community of play, which is all about coming together to have fun. Now, like, like a Nike running club or a Harley Davidson kind of thing. Yes. If you, if you don't have product market fit, Christian, you cannot start a community of product, right? Because people will feel like you're trying to sell them something. And so Boast couldn't do a community product because we barely had a product and we barely had any customers. So now remember the exercise I said, understand your ICP really well, figure out their aspirations. Your aspirations, when you understand the aspirations of your audience, it gives you your purpose, long-term purpose, and it gives you also the kind of community you wanna build. So we said, what do all innovators want? They wanna create impact in the world. And so our purpose became helping innovators to change the world. And so what is a key driver of that is traction. So we call the community attraction, right? Makes total sense. And uh, <laughs> right now you're launching your new book. Please tell us more about it. Definitely. So, you know, over time, the community grew and grew and grew. And today it's 120,000 subscribers. We do conferences, we do podcasts, we do meetups Which in different cities. Which was the biggest? The traction conference, the last one we did was a big, was a big one, right? How many attendees? So we capped the conference at about a thousand attendees and then we stopped because again, it's, it's entirely volunteer run. It's me, Ray, Alex, and then 60, 70 volunteers. 
And oh, what well. my my belief is that it's better to please a small group of people than to make it massive and fail, right? I don't have the muscle power or the money to do it. And it's entirely volunteer run. It's hard to do big things, big, big events. Because once you go more than a thousand people, then you can't do it at a hotel anymore. You got to get a makeshift venue and yes. you got you to gotta hire unionized labor. It's hard. So we called it yeah. Traction anyway. And uh, our annual Traction Conf last year capped at a thousand. We've actually been selling out one month in advance every year. And it also well, keeps the amazing. FOMO, right? It always yeah. keeps the FOMO. So anyway, uh, Christian, so we built this community and it started growing. The more people started coming to our meetups, more our conference started growing, the more the subscriber base started growing because now we have a weekly newsletter. We do a podcast every other week. We have a YouTube. At one point in 2020, we canceled the conference because of the pandemic and we took everything online. So rather than doing a two-day virtual summit, right, it's like killing the golden goose um, and trying to eat all the eggs at once, we said, we'll do two live webinars a week. The benefit of doing a two-day live, two live webinar a week is it's a, now this, let's say we have this interaction, audience comes, they also ask questions, and you're doing it twice a week. And we did that twice a week for two years in a row, and our email subscribers went from 30 some odd thousand to over 100,000, because just consistency. Now, if you do one big conference, and you're saying, buy my stuff, buy my stuff, come to my conference, the same thing. But now every week you have people coming. And so they started sharing, more and more people started coming to our events. So nonetheless, what happened during the pandemic was there was one window of opportunity open to host an event in person. And we did a small event in person, maybe two, 300 people. And that's how our investors came. <laughs> they came to the event, they liked it. Um, and then they wanted to talk and it went into this route of they bought half the company. But what I realized, Christian, is all my life I had been surrounded by community. So my childhood was spent, you know, I was born in Kuwait. My mom grew up in the slums of India. So every summer we would spend in the slums of India. And my fondest memories as a child were in the slums of India, where watching TV was a community activity. Going to the bathroom was a community activity because there's no toilet in the bathroom. So all of that was a very communal activity. Then the war hit in Kuwait. And the, I, I experienced firsthand how a community can come together to create big impact. The, com the country was largely supported and helped and evacuate with the power of community. Then when we're building Boast, again, the community helped us get to 10 million ARR. When we got to 10 million ARR, Christian, we had no marketing team. Imagine this. It was like lots of community events. And our, well, sales, our salespeople were going to all these events. They were going to partnered events. They were going to community events. They were going to events we hosted. But our salespeople were not seen like, oh, this person is trying to sell me something kind of car salesman, but seen as a trusted advisor, as a partner. Oh, the Boast guys are coming. They're going to talk to us. They're going to understand our business. Not only are they going to get us money, but maybe they'll make two, three other introductions if we need angel investors. We became like friends. And then when we sold the company and me and uh, sold half the company, me and Alex transitioned out of the day to day. We brought in a new CEO. Me and Alex are now on the board. I became depressed, man. I shouldn't have been depressed, right? Because I became rich. I had never seen money all through the three startups we did. My wife was paying the bills at home. And as soon as I came into money, I became depressed. My health deteriorated. Well, and then fi finally, after you know many months, I came back to good health through the community itself. I joined a fitness community, and that brought me to sanity. And I came into a lot of free time, and I said, as I look back, every time in my life when I had no money, I was always happy, and I had the community. 
because I had the community. The one time where I had everything in the world and I got depressed when I didn't have a community. And so I started looking at why this was happening, reflecting, and started thinking that, you know, my DNA is community. And that's why that happened. Then I started reading stats that, you know, social connections is the number one driver or one of the happiness. top drivers to happiness, right? Yes. America has some of the loneliest people because they don't have outwardly social connections. Or yes. looking at the blue zones where five places in the world where people live functionally till they're 100. Functional is key, right? And four out of the nine traits of those people are community-oriented, being a part of a social group, religious group, working out together, socializing, etc. So community was a big one. Then I started looking at all the biggest brands, not the startup brands who came up in the last 20 years or 10 years and became unicorns, but all the generational companies that existed and sustained and became enduring. And they also had community in common. So, so the way to put it is after I talked to like about a thousand people and looked into all the most enduring iconic brands, I realized every small idea that eventually became a worldwide global phenomena from Christianity to CrossFit had four things in common. Wait, right? wait, wait. And so those, those four things were people listen to you, you have an audience, you bring that audience together to interact with one another, it becomes a community. But when the community comes together to create impact towards a greater cause, a greater purpose that's far greater than your product or your profit, it becomes a movement. And when the movement has undying faith in that purpose through sustained rituals over time, it becomes a cult or a religion. And that's the case with Harley Davidson. And that's the case with brands like HubSpot or Apple or Nike. See, we're in the age of AI and everyone's talking about AI, AI, AI. But ultimately, how did OpenAI build this company? With the power of community, right? Open source and we were members of OpenAI in 2019. We were giving our, Boast was giving our data there, some of our data there, right? And, and contributing to that community. If the community didn't exist, OpenAI wouldn't exist. Yesterday's innovation always becomes tomorrow's commodity. If you build a community, you won't become a commodity. And that was the thesis. And that's why I wrote this book because it was one personally connected to me as somebody who's only been where he is today because of the power of community. And the only time I had everything and got depressed was when the community wasn't there and then finding those common themes. So I wanted to write a book more along how do you leverage the power of people to create sustainable long-term businesses and create a moat? Because again, the same thing, yesterday's innovation always becomes tomorrow's commodity. So don't start chasing the next marketing tactic. You know, to close out, I'll give you an example. You know, we talk about AI and we talk about fintech and all of this stuff. But if you look back, one of the most iconic brands of all time is Harley Davidson, the bike, right? Yes, yes. In the 1980s, when electronics was being commoditized, the Japanese bike manufacturers came in and Harley Davidson faced bankruptcy. Now the management came out and said, we're going to rebuild the company on the ethos of community. They forced, not forced, but rather they encouraged employees and leaders to go out and create Harley Rider Clubs. 
employees became writers, writers became employees, and you know, they started this weekend clubs, weekend warriors, ride together. It became a ritual. Over time, those people created a movement to save Harley from bankruptcy, but then they created several other movements to donate to breast cancer, to save people from autism. And today, you know somebody is a Harley Davidson fan just by what they're wearing. The company's worth over $7 billion, but more importantly, it's a generational brand. How many people can say that their brand has carried off for 50, 60 years like that, right? Not many. And so the key is people. Technology will come and go. In the beginning, we said internet company, right? Dot com, dot com. Then we said social company. Then we said yes. mobile company. Now we're saying AI company. Yesterday's innovation always becomes tomorrow's commodity. We'll no longer say AI company either. Every company will need, AI will be commoditized. People will never, ever be commoditized, right? Especially to build an enduring brand. And so the other, the other element was I wanted to tell that story because as somebody who built Boast AI, helped build Boast AI, we also leveraged the power of community and so did OpenAI. And so the, the, the book is called <laughs> From Grassroots to Greatness, 13 Rules to Build Iconic Brands with Community-Led Growth. You can go to amazon.com and type it or go to fromgrassrootstogreatness.com. And I'll also have bonus content in terms of a Notion doc that will have templates for each chapter that will walk you step-by-step on creating and scaling your own audiences and communities. Thank you so much. It's amazing. One of my uh, next questions was, uh, why do you love community building so much? But you already answered. I have maybe one last question. I wanted to ask you, what's your secret to your uh, passion, to your uh, charisma? And uh, how did you develop this mindset? I really like it, (laughs) of helping others, of community. What can you tell us about, uh, about it? I think a lot of it is just being a part of it from my childhood, right? Like, so like when we used to go to India and stay in the slums with our grandparents, they had nine people in the house plus the two parents. And uh, sorry, my mom, yeah, my mom had nine siblings. So 10 kids and and two adults. And uh, every time I'd go there, there's no bathroom in the house, right? Every several houses has a TV. I think my grandparents' house has a TV because my mom was working in in kuwait so she could afford to send one mm-hmm. but you know every time they would have some strangers in the house watching tv together or sharing food and i'd ask them like why do you have this you barely have enough for your kids barely enough room for your kids and i would hear this all the time the only way to create abundance in life is to help people without expecting anything in return and i tell you Crazy. man every everyone works hard but everything i've gotten in life is through this community, right? Bootstrapping the company, getting rescued from the war, becoming, meeting our investors who made us rich. So, you know, that community, that bringing people together drives me energy. I get, I I don't know what it is, I I can't describe it, but the energy I get from being around people and, and seeing communities thrive is second to none. And the only time that energy of mine tanked to zero and I got depressed, when I, when I left the day-to-day of the company and I felt like my community was, was going. And that's why I wanted to write this book uh, as an homage. But in terms of people listening, I'll tell you something. I was an engineer and I was an awkward engineer. I wasn't always somebody who could speak in front of people. I couldn't speak at all. I was very shy. And so when I graduated engineering, I asked somebody, if I want to be an entrepreneur someday, what's the best skill I could learn? And they said, communication. Communication is everything from convincing your wife to evangelizing your employees to talking to investors. Everything you do is communication. 
Right. So I asked, you know, what's the best way to learn to communicate? If you want to learn a skill and you're not good at it, put yourself in an environment that forces you to do that skill day in, day out. A lot of people, it's hard. Like internal motivation is hard, right? Oh, I want to write on LinkedIn every day. See, I've been trying to get good on LinkedIn. Every time I write a post, it gets five, 600 likes. So now I'm afraid that, oh, you know what? I don't want to make any random posts. So now I'll post once in two weeks. If I could only post every day, right? Like see these events we did. We did that so consistently. That's why it blew up. With the webinars we did so consistently, it blew up. But now LinkedIn is, is getting hard for me because I'm worried, oh, what if the next post gets only 100 likes that I don't want to post? The consistency is very important. Ignore the results. Focus on consistency. If you keep being consistent, it will eventually compound. Like Jason Lemkin's quote, he wrote the forward on my book. And his key quote is, consistency is the secret ingredient that turns small actions into big outcomes. Like he started blogging on Quora. And then he created his own blog. He just never stopped, right? Or the most richest person in B2B SaaS is Larry Ellison. He never sold a share. He just kept going. He kept going. So I said, what would force me to be consistent in communication? It would be getting a sales job. So I took my first job in cold calling. And it was very hard, man. I practiced for four hours to make the first cold call. Wow. And the first time the decision maker came on the phone, I hung up. But I needed to make money. So I took a job in cold calling. So I kept going and going and going. And eventually that improved my communication. But there are three, three core skills you need to be great in business, in life, in anything. One is communication. Without communication, you cannot connect with people. Without commu communication, you don't have an uh, uh, audience. You have an empty room. The second is your ability to create. Creating products, creating content, whatever it is. We're all creators. Whether you're a founder or whether you're a TikTok influencer, you're a creator. Creation is key. And the third thing, which is most, most important, is consistency. You can be really talented and not be consistent, and you'll not get results. Your, your talent will, without consistency will never improve. Nobody will see it. So communication, creation, and consistency are the three key things you need to build something successful. This podcast was amazing. I'm super grateful and it was a pleasure. Is there anything else that you want to share today? You already shared immense value, but uh, yeah. <laughs> the only thing I'll say is, you know, find a community and it'll be your home wherever you go. Find a community that you resonate with. Brands of yesterday were built on what they told the world about themselves and brands of the future will be built on what the community says about them. If you build a community, you will not become a commodity. You can follow me on LinkedIn. I put interesting content there once, twice a week. Lloyd Lobo and uh, check out my book from grassroots to greatness.com. We'll stream podcasts there. We'll stream more content there. We'll have the Notion book in it for free, the Notion handbook in addition to the actual book uh, on there as well. And the Notion book will be there for free just in exchange for your email address. Thank you so much, Lloyd. You did fantastic. I'm super grateful and I super appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining. Hey, thank you so much, Christian.